So turn with me to Psalm 115, if you will, please. Uh, when we um, were going through a short, shorter uh, um, study of the Egyptian halal, and that's a group of psalms, uh, including Psalm 113 all the way to 118, that are uh, recited, and I'm not 100% sure of the order. I, I, I've heard contradictory uh, orders of when it's recited during the Passover feast that the Jewish people would celebrate. Um, and at anyways, as they're, they're eating the meal and going through the night, they, rec- they, re- um, they recite or sing these, um, these psalms because they uh, speak of the God who is the deliverer, the God who uh, claimed them, the, the Jewish people, as his own. And so this is extremely important to them. They were not a nation until uh, they were um, rescued from Egypt. And so the Passover, uh, the Passover celebration and, specific, and this meal was uh, something that they did to always remember this. And to not only remember it, so that they would not forget the, the mercy and faithfulness of God, but also so that they would be able to teach their children. It's fascinating how they do this, and the whole order of it. And it's meant to include the children, and uh, it's, a very, it's a teaching tool, along with a tool of remembrance. So, um, we're at Psalm 115. Now, some accounts, Psalm 113 and 114 are sung before the meal, and then Psalm 115 through to 18 um, are sung after the meal. And in fact, if you recall, in Matthew, in, in the Gospels, it speaks of Jesus in the, uh, when he was having the Last Supper with the disciples, that they were, uh, uh, after the feast, it says that they sung hymns, and then they went to the Garden of Gethsemane. So this would have been the hymns that they would have sung. Uh, either this group of the Great Halal, or uh, Egyptian Halal, or possibly even the Great Halal, which is Psalm 136. However, we're going to look at Psalm 115 tonight. Um, this is... Uh, a, there's a context to Psalm 115 that we have to know before it, we can put it in its right place in the um, Passover feast and why it was important for the people of Israel to be recited at this this time of remembrance of the deliverance and the ownership that God placed on them, that they became a nation. So we're going to look at the other context, perhaps a context that was um, when this was uh, created or penned the occasion for which it was penned and the time that the, the people of Israel had just gone through. So this was um, quite possibly after the Babylonian exile. So after that had ended. This is typically or, or most commonly where this is placed, this psalm. So after the, the Babylonian exile uh, finished, um, they went back to Jerusalem and rebuilt the temple and it's most likely that this would have been recited or written for the temple dedication, uh, the second temple dedication. So we, and we can read about that in Ezra chapter 6. It speaks of how the priests and the children of Israel and the Levites um, of the captivity, they dedicated uh, the house, the house of God with joy, it says. So this now, in that context... Okay, the people of Israel had just been uh, released from the captivity of exile. 
or of a Babylonian exile. Um, that was lasted about 70 years. So just a little bit of a history, if you don't remember exactly what happened there or why that happened. Um, they went into captivity because of idol worship. So I'm going to just look at uh, a chat, some verses in Second Kings. Actually, first let's look at Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 28. It, it, it gives a... Um, uh, a list of blessings for obedience to God, but then it also gives a list of curses for disobedience. And Deuteronomy chapter 28 says, But if it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. And then begins this long list of curses. And in in verse 36 says, The Lord shall bring thee and thy king, which thou shalt set over thee, unto a nation which neither thou nor thy fathers have known, and there shalt thou serve other gods, wood and stone. So one of the curses was that if they were not obedient to the commands of the Lord and to the statutes of the Lord, that they would be sent to another nation and they would be essentially slaves. They will be, they shall be set over you. Um, and this is some a place that they had never been before, and they will serve other gods made of wood and stone. So just a, a brief example of what was it that uh, the children of Israel were doing. Um, we look at 2 Kings 21, verses 2 to 14. We're not going to read them all because it's quite lengthy, but it speaks of Manasseh, who is the son of Hezekiah, and it speaks of how he... Um, kept worshiping other gods, for he built up again the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. And he reared up altars for Baal and made a grove, as did Ahab king of Israel, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. Not the host of heaven, not the godly uh, uh, the host, but rather the, the gods of the of the heavens and, and the, you know, the, the, you, the stars and so on and so forth. He built up altars in the house of the Lord. So in the house of God, he set up altars. Um, it says also in verse six, and he made his sons pass through the fire. In other words, he burned his sons as offerings and observed times. So he fortune tellers and omens and, and mediums and all necromancers. And he did all these things in the sight of God, much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And he set up graven image of the grove that he had made in the house of which the Lord said to David and Solomon, his son, In this house, in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, will I put my name forever. God had said, I will put my name here. My stamp of ownership will be here in this place. And Manasseh went and put other idols in there. God calls them to repentance, but they hearkened not, and Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than did the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the children of Israel. So even more vile and evil they did than all the people whom they first conquered under Joshua. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, this is verse 12, Behold, I am bringing such evil upon Jerusalem and Judah, that whosoever heareth of it, both his ears shall tingle. I thought this was so interesting to hear. I I can't imagine what terribleness, terrible news you'd have to hear to make your ears tingle. 
But it says in verse 14, And I will forsake the remnant of mine inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies. So here we see one example of Manasseh who set up idols, worshipped other gods, who specifically in the house of God, whom God had said, this is where I will put my name, my ownership. I, You will be my people and I will be your God and I will put my name here. And Manasseh rejected it and he served other idols and other gods. And this is actually not just Manasseh, but so many others. His son after him did the same things and worse. And all through the history of Israel, they, they rejected God and they turned to other gods. The gods of the nations about them, the gods of their imaginations, who knows what it was. But they had this propensity to go and serve other gods. And so, now remembering this, they've now been put into captivity. Uh, Babylon came and took them all away. They were all in Babylon for 70 years. And there they are in this foreign land with, uh, uh, in captivity, slaves, hard labor, and all about them, they're seeing this uh, uh, idol worship. Idols of wood, idols of stone. And this is what they see now for 70 years. And many think that, and, and if we look at the history of Israel afterwards, this, in a sense, almost cured them of idol worship. Because after this, this was not a problem for them anymore. The rest of the history of Israel, we don't see that they were turning to other gods after this. So now, with this in mind, that's in the context of this psalm was being written now. They've just left that place. They have been freed. They are now home again in Jerusalem. And they have now built the temple for the second time. And this is the dedication and this is possibly the, the setting, the scenario, most likely the setting of this psalm. And so now this psalm, it would have been uh, most likely recounted or recited at this dedication. Um, it's um, it's uh, antif- antiphony. And so what you have here is you have different parts being spoken here. You have the people who will sing or, or have a part. And then you'll have either the, the choir leader or the priest who will then also have a part. And sometimes they're answering back and forth. It would actually be lovely to be able to do this. Um, and you, you, it's lovely when you, you have this, this, this answer, the call and the answer and so on. So that's what the, how this psalm is um, uh, is built. So let's start with the psalm. Psalm 115, verse 1. Now, remembering all of that, this is uh, the psalm. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Wherefore should the heathen say, Where is now their God? But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They that make them are like unto them. So is every one that trusteth in them. O Israel, trust thou in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. 
Ye that fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord hath been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless them that fear the Lord, both small and great. The Lord shall increase you more and more, you and your children. Ye are blessed of the Lord, which made heaven and earth. The heaven, even the heavens, are the Lord's, but the earth hath he given to the children of men. The dead praise not the Lord, neither any that go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth forevermore. Praise the Lord. So here we have uh, this psalm, and, and we see perhaps now, maybe it makes more sense when we see, see the psalmist, the writer, is, is addressing the, the different idols and, and the, the, the characteristics of the idols. So, But at the beginning, it says, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us. This isn't about us. This is not about uh, anything that we've done or anything uh, good or bad, but it's unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. So this is about glorifying God. The, the outset, this is the, the starting note, if you will. The priest would be saying this, and he would be, it's unto God, unto the name, unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake, for his faithfulness and, um, we know what Paul says uh, in Second Corinthians, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. This is a, a super-duper challenge in, in the times that we live in. That we make it not about us. Because it's always about us. The culture, the, the message is always make it about yourself. I am. It's all about you. What do you want? We have the product that will make you happy, rich, beautiful, successful. But it always comes back to us. And here the psalm, the priest is saying to the, or I'm sorry, this would be the people. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory. Wherefore should the heavens, the heathens say, where is now their God? Wherefore? Why? For what reason? Why should the heathens say, where now is their God? This is actually a taunt that the nations, the heathen nations, would have given to the children of Israel oftentimes. And if I dare say, it was something that just bothered them so much. Because you can see in some of the other literature, from what I understand, that this was something that was a sore spot for them. Because this common taunt uh, that, you know, they, where, where is your God? Where now is your Lord? Uh, we can, there's certain references to it. Uh, Joel 2 verses 17, uh, Psalm 42 3, 79 10, uh, Micah 7 10 are examples of where the nations, the heathens, would taunt the Israelites. Where now is your God? But our God, it says in verse 3, is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. See, these taunts typically would have come at a time when Israel was down. So let's say, for instance, uh, the Philistines, when they saw the Egypt or the Israelites being taken away to Babylon, they would have said to them, they would have taunted them, Oh yeah, where now is your God? Or perhaps uh, the Samaritans who, uh, or, or somebody else would, you know, when, when they were going through a, a difficult time. Maybe even in Egypt, let's say, uh, when, or, or through the, the wilderness, when, you know, they were having these hard experiences and it seemed like God was nowhere. The people would have said to them, where now is your God? 
But they say in verse 3, but our God is in the heavens. You see, people want to look and they say, oh, Israel, you're really suffering now. Yeah, where's your God now, right? We don't see him. And they say, you don't see him because he isn't here. He's not here in flesh and blood. He's in the heavens. He's above all things. He's transcendent. He is above all of creation because all creation was his creation. Our God, even though you may think that he is not here with us, you may not see him, but you certainly see the effects of him. Perhaps Pharaoh in his uh, pride would have said to the, in his mind, thinking to the, uh, uh, the Israelites as they were at the edge of the sea, oh yeah, now where is your God that you want to go worship? And now, you know, he never did see God, but he certainly saw the effects. He saw the evidence. He saw the experience as the sea opened up and the children of Israel walked right through. Where was their God? He was in heaven and yet he was very much with them. It says also, he hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. He is sovereign. And even when nations would taunt, they knew that God does whatever he wants, even if it seems bad at the time. So, you know, God directed them to the edge of, of the uh, Red Sea. There was another way that they could have gone. But he directed them to the edge of the Red Sea. Why did he do it? Because he's sovereign. Because he does whatever he wants to do. And even though at that time the people may have been very afraid and said, What are you doing? Like, this is the worst place to put us between a rock and the ocean. God says, I am sovereign and I will do as I wish. And he does. And he is still God. Even though it may look on the outside as if we are cast down. Even though it may look on the outside as though we are uh, troubled, we are in crisis, there's tragedy in our lives. God is still sovereign. He is in heaven. He is transcendent. He is above the universe. And he is sovereign. And the Israelites had this faith. So even when the taunts come, even when the judgment comes, even when the glances come, that say, that people may look at you and say, like, ooh, something, he did something wrong. Look at the condition that he's in. We can have a certainty that God is sovereign, that God is in control. And as it says in Romans, all things work together for the good, for good, for them that love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. Do you have that confidence? The same confidence that the people had here. See, because remember, for 70 years, they were being taunted. But they knew, or they certainly know now, that God is sovereign. In the next portion, verses 4 to 8, we see a description of the uh, the idols of the world. Now, the question comes... Um, or it's a highlight of the idols and, and those who actually worship them. Uh, this is very similar, almost word for word, from Psalm 135. So it says here, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. 
They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. So let's just look quickly at the uh, the characteristics of the uh, idols, or rather, not so much what the idols are or what they have, but really the 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 comparison here or the point of this is what don't the idols have? They have these things, but they're useless. They have the eyes. And as I was studying this, I came across this commentary, and I loved so much how they put this. They have mouths. They have no mouths. They cannot speak to their people, make covenants, give promise, promises, guidance, or encouragement. Our God speaks to us. These idols do not speak. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They offer their followers no protection or oversight. Our God's eyes are upon us, and we can trust in him. Our God sees us. Our God sees intimately what we go through. And even though there's nobody else in the world, perhaps, who sees what we are going through, or sees the inner heart, God does. These idols do not. They have ear, eyes, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. No ears. No matter how much the, the idolaters pray, their gods cannot hear them. Remember Elijah on Mount Carmel. Do you remember when he was taunting the worshippers of Baal, the prophets of Baal? Maybe you need to speak louder. You scream louder. To maybe Baal is asleep. Well, he was, because he has no ears. He cannot hear. God, our, our God can hear. God can hear the silent whispers. God can hear the thoughts of the heart. The brokenness, perhaps. The the inner cry of the heart. Our God hears, but they cannot. Noses have they, but they smell not. So this speaks of God's receiving our worship. You know how they would always burn the incense, right? This is the receiving of the worship of God. This is what the, the nose would signify. But they don't have that, because they're, they have nothing. But our God does receive our praise, our worship, and being pleased with what we bring to him. This is the God that we serve, the one who hears, the one who smells, who receives the worship that we give. It's a beautiful scent to him. These gods do not have that. They have hands, but they handle not. No hands. The workers whose hands made the idols have more power than the idols they call gods. Our God is able to work for us as we seek to serve him. His fingers made the universe and his arm brought salvation. This is the God that we serve. The one whose hands are strong and mighty and are able to save. The hands that these idols have are motionless, can do nothing. Feet have they, but they walk not. No feet. The people had to carry their idols. But our God carries us and walks with us. This is the God we serve, the one who carries us. I always, always love that poem, or that, that, that I guess it is a poem, the, the footprints in the sand. How beautiful that is because how, how that catches the, the character, the nature of God, that in our toughest times of life, we often perceive that we have been left alone. It is those times that God is carrying us. Those are the footprints we see in the sand. Neither speak they through their throat. 
Now, I don't get this one particularly. I'm not sure what this means, but it almost, when I, when I look at the, uh, the, the Hebrew words there, it's almost like a rough growling or, or like, uh, their mouths are like an open sepulcher, but I, I'm gonna leave this because I'm not 100% sure what that all means. But in verse 8 here, you know, this is a really important verse to, to draw out of this when we're looking at the idols and those who trust in them. They that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. They that make them are like unto them. Those who trust in them become like them. So even though they were fashioned by a man who was using all of his faculties, they themselves, the idols, are motionless. They're mute. They cannot do anything. And over time, we become like that idol. We become spiritually dead. In contrast, though, as we worship God, we become transformed by God. We become transformed to become more like Him. It says this in the Scriptures that we are to be conformed to the image of the Son. More and more, the, 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 the Spirit is working in us, sanctifying us, transforming us to become more and more and more like the image of the Son. So we can, contrary to the idols... Contrary to those who, who uh, put their trust in idols, we can now begin to see the need, even as God sees needs. We can begin to speak trump comfort and truth. We can hear the cries of the lost and the needy. And we are his hands and his feet. You see, even the, the, the idols, what they put so much uh, adoration in, they were dumb and, and, and useless and pointless and, and motionless. And so they became so. Their senses became dull. They were not able to uh, be spiritually vibrant. But we, on the other hand, as God's children, as we become more, as we worship Him, and as we put our trust in Him, we become more like Him. And the character and the nature of God becomes more and more real in our lives. And the imprint of the nature of God becomes more and more evident for the world around us to see. This is the hard truth of this. This this verse here is so important. Those who trust in the idols become like them. Now we move on to the next portion uh, between 9 and 15. And, and this talks about the Lord and those who trust in him. So now the priest and the choir. Now this is the part of the antiphony that I, I, I would love to hear one time. But here the priest says, O Israel, trust thou in the Lord. And then the choir most likely would answer, He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Ye that fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield would echo the choir. See, we're called to trust. We... we Read in, in, in the verse, third verse, God is, is in the heavens. We don't see him. We don't, uh, again, we, we don't see the, the, the carnal nature. Like, there's not, he's not a physical being here with us, but we see the effects. We see the, the outworking of who God is. We need to trust in him. Just as the, the children of Israel were always, by the Passover feast, they were always hearkening back to trust in God because of what he had done. They were always being reminded to go back. Verse 
verses 12 and 13 would be sung by the people. The Lord hath been mindful of us or remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless them that fear the Lord, both small and great. So this is why we need to trust in him. We're called to trust in him. Why? Because it's the right thing to do? Yes, but because of the blessings that come from it as well. Or the resulting trust or has these blessings that come from it. it, it we have way, not enough time, but Leviticus chapter 26, uh, it says, If you walk in my uh, statutes and keep my commandments and do them, then begins this long list of how God will bless them and increase them. Uh, same with Deuteronomy chapter 28. I, I began at the, the bottom of it, but the first 14 verses are of, If you hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe, it says, He will bless. Blessed shall be, blessed shall be, blessed shall be. And I will bless you and I will command blessings upon thee. And we see this list. God is saying, trust in me. I want you to trust in me. I want you to hearken unto my commandments. I want you to look at uh, what I'm offering to you and my my statutes for life. And I want you to, to be obedient to them. And you will be blessed by that. And this is not just a payoff in a sense, but this is the natural outflow of the life that God is asking us to live. The wisdom, that good and acceptable and perfect will of God being lived out, it results in these blessings. These are not the payoff. These are the natural uh, resulting fruit of the obedience to God. These blessings. That's why we are to trust in Him. Not because it's a moral sticker on, on our chart, but because of, of it's the right thing to do because He is worthy and His way is good and it's perfect. And the blessings flow from that. Verse 14 and 15. The Lord shall increase you more and more, you and your children. Ye are blessed of the Lord which made heaven and earth. The contrast is with what the idols can do. What can the idols do? Nothing. They do nothing. They sit there and and they do nothing. And here, the Lord shall increase you more and more. You and your children, you are blessed of the Lord which made heaven and earth. The one who made heaven and earth. The real God, the God of power. This is the one whom you are to trust in. This is why you are to trust him. This is who he is. And then finally, verses 16 to 18. This is praise due to the sovereign, the God of heaven. The heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth hath he given to the children of men. We see that in Genesis chapter 1, the last few verses. God giving uh, to man and, and woman the control of the earth. The, they're supposed to uh, subdue it. It says in verse 17, The dead praise not the Lord, neither any that go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth forevermore. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah, it says. So here is the praise to God, um, the sovereign, the God of heaven, um, the one who is eternal. Now, I, I want to just quickly, and I, I realize how fast time has gone here, or at least it has for me, but I want to just think about this here now. The exile must have created for um, the Israelites a real crisis because what do they do with this? The God who rescued them from Egypt, the God who claimed them as his own, now they are in exile. Now they have been put right back into captivity. Who is our God? The questions that, you know, that they've been taunted with, perhaps these are their questions now. The nations would taunt them and say, where is your God now? 
Maybe they were asking the same thing. Where is our God now? This psalm is a response to those doubts. They look to God. Not to us. Not to unto us, but unto thy name give glory, they say. They recognize that God who is overall, the God who is powerful, the God who is sovereign. When you think of it in the context of the halal, the Egyptian halal during the Passover, see, they, the people, they had all these promises in Exodus chapter 6, uh, verses 6 and 7, speaks of how God will redeem them, how he take them out of captivity, how he will claim them and make him his own. And here, because of their lack, because of their unfaithfulness, they found themselves in this terrible place. But because of God's goodness, because of God's mercy and His truthfulness, they find redemption again. And this is worthy to be praised. This is worthy to be recited. This is worthy to uh, remind themselves over and over and over again that we need to look to God and, and to walk with God. But now for us in, in our time, um, we're going to have crises in our lives as well, or crises in our lives. Uh, will we be asking the same questions? Where now is our God? Why am I going through this? What's going to come next? Is it all lost? Maybe we're going through a job loss, uh, a marriage breakup, a pandemic, loss of a family member. Uh, maybe there's sin in our lives. Uh, maybe there's the silence of God that we are confronted with. How will we respond to this? How do we go forward from here? Now, do we look to other things? See, this is, this is where the children of Israel, they made the right choice. Instead of staying in, in Babylon, instead of uh, just becoming one with the people, their captors, and uh, starting to worship their idols... They went home. They repented and went home. But what will we do? Will we give our heart to something else? When it seems like God is silent, when it seems like God is uh, nowhere to be seen, we don't see the evidence of him in our lives, will we turn to other things then? See, Psalm 15 exhorts us to look to God. But what will we do? In whom will we trust? See, those are the two comparisons or the two choices that we have. Will we trust in the idols? Perhaps money or reputation, uh, perhaps a heritage that we have or the abilities that we have. Will we turn to them and put our trust in them when things get really out of, uh, out of order or um, they just seem to go sideways? Will we cling to the promises of God? Will we remember Exodus chapter 6 when he delivered them out and how in our own lives he delivered us from death? Or will we look to a God of our own making and will change the nature of God, not from the scriptures anymore, but from a, a God that we prefer, perhaps, one who's more loving, perhaps, one who doesn't look on sin as much or so harsh, or perhaps one whose promises in life are going to make me very rich. Are these the idols that we will put our trust in? Or will we put our trust in the God of heaven? The God who is not absent, even though we don't see him. We don't see him and can't handle him in our, our, with our flesh. Yet he is there. Will we turn to him? Will we turn to the one who remembers us? 
The one who's mindful of us. Who above all the things, it says, remember in, in, in uh, I think it was Psalm 113, says he has to stoop down to look at us. He remembers us. Is that the God that you will turn to? Will you turn to the God who is our help and our shield? Will you trust in him? In the one who blesses us. In the one who is eternal. The Lord is the only God. Blessed are his people, they who trust in him and not in the gods of the nations. Our God will bless us, and we will bless his name forevermore. Hallelujah.